Welcome to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. This is Nathaniel Cogley. And this is Eric Morrow. And we want to welcome you to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. But we also want to welcome back our co-host, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Cogley, from his journeys over the Christmas break. Uh, we also want to wish everyone a happy new year. Uh, here we are uh, starting a full year uh, of shows, Cogley and Morrow on Politics. And we kind of left last year uh, with this being our number 10 event of the year, at least for us, uh, in looking at what's going on in the nation and around the world. Yeah, I'm back from California, and I brought a sore throat with me, so okay. hopefully right. the so, listeners can bear with me. All right, so lots more talking for me today, but uh, anyway, no, we, we've got a great show planned for you, uh, but first we want to remind you uh, that you can find uh, related stories posted on Facebook. You can listen to our episodes following uh, the broadcast on SoundCloud, and you can also download from your podcast source of choice. Uh, and so just remember that these uh, episodes are available to you, uh, that if you do miss our live broadcast, uh, which is on Sundays at noon on KTRL FM 90.5, that uh, you can listen at your leisure. And we encourage you to do so as we try to bring you a lot of issues or major issues that are going on each week with civility and depth. But as we look back over our last three months of shows, we've covered a lot of territory, a lot of ground. We, we do what we can. We try to make our humble contribution. And starting off with this show, uh, we're looking at there was some headline news about a shooting at the West Freeway Church of Christ in White Settlement, Texas. I don't know that area too well, but I pass it on my way to DFW all the time. We're seeing that off ramp to uh, parishioners uh, shot and there was a security guard who shot the shooter. Um, and this is one of just a series of tragedies that have happened in Texas concerning gun violence. We had a 2017 shooting in Plano, Texas, uh, Sutherland Springs Church shooting where 27 people were killed in November 2017. Santa Fe High School shooting, 10 people killed in May 18th, 2018. Uh, 2019 El Paso shooting at a Walmart with 22 people killed. 2019 Odessa Midland shooting with seven people killed. And this West Freeway Church of Christ shooting, uh, two victims and the shooter himself killed. Um, these are certainly adding to the debate on gun control in Texas. Um, people may assume that I'm the, I'm the shooter of uh, the, of us. Eric, I grew up in Northern California, raised by hippies. I've never shot a gun and I've been invited to shoot in Texas now. I, I've said I'm willing to do it and it just hasn't happened yet. You're the native Texan. Uh, you, you've shot guns. You're proficient with firearms. Um, and so I'm just wondering, as the Texan who has actual experience with firearms, um, how are these tragedies that Texas is experiencing shaping the policy debate around gun control in Texas? Well, we really have to understand the context of of guns and gun ownership and use in Texas. And so I, I do have a history uh, with that. While my family growing up were not avid hunters, I did have the occasional opportunity, uh, more so when I was in high school, because I had friends who lived uh, on farms or had, had land. The families had land and we would go out. Often these were camp outs where we would uh, uh, do some shooting uh, either for sport or, or practice. Uh, so I've, I've been around that. Uh, 
uh, uh, even uh, I, I was in high school at a time when students would have firearms in gun racks in their trucks oh on goodness. on campus. I mean, this was a time how, when how old were students? Uh, how old? This is high school age. Wow. So yeah, between you know fifteen and eighteen, uh, because uh, uh, some would immediately leave high school to go out and work on a farm somewhere and to have a gun was sometimes a necessity because you never knew what you might run into, especially snakes or, or other things while you were working or the opportunity to be able to maybe do a little hunting, depending on what, what season it was. So it was not really, uh, that major of an issue in growing up in rural Texas, uh, in this kind of culture, because, uh, Families taught their children how to, you know, gun safety, uh, how how and when you used guns. Uh, I remember even on some of these campouts, you know, you got a bunch of high school uh, kids and, you know, think they might get a little out of hand, but... Uh, uh, I remember some of my friends, uh, you know, they would bring alcohol or something like that. But as the evening wore on, then there was always two or three of us that were responsible and we put all the guns away, you know, just to make sure that that, that things were kept safe. But uh, it's, a, it's a different era uh, and it's a different time and it's changed considerably in Texas, especially uh, we have to understand the gun control debate in Texas, looking back over the history of the state. I mean, you have a state that was shaped very much by a a culture of, of, of individualism that was highly af- af- impacted by trying to find your way and make your life on the frontier. And the frontier uh, was a violent place in Texas. We go back to the 1800s and um, early 1800s, even, even into the late part of the century. Uh, sometimes that was in- engagement with Native Americans. Sometimes it was engagement because you were, you know, living out and, and uh, on your own and, and, and you had to make your way and you needed a, a weapon for survival. Uh, so, uh, but, but we also had sometimes that there were periods of lawlessness in certain areas. And so it was about self-defense, knowing that the law may not always be there to be enforced, uh, having uh, people there to uh, uh, to enforce it and to, to not have people take it into their own hands. So you have a culture that has developed in this state that still has elements of that, even though we are a very urban state now, given our large cities, uh, we're still a very rural state. And so we're, uh, we're hunting, we're gun ownership, uh, we're even emphasis, as we see in this recent debate or ongoing debate on gun control about Second Amendment rights of being able to uh, protect and defend yourself. So that that's a the broader culture. The, the more recent, when we look at it, up until the 1960s, uh, there was a certain level of gun control in Texas. You know, guns were not permitted in on college campuses. Uh, the, some of this was a response to the the, the Vietnam era um, uh, and protests and things that were going on. Uh, but after the shooting uh, at the University of Texas Tower, uh, that that really uh, uh, kind of just struck people as okay, here's something very tragic that someone would 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 do an act like this that would just randomly take life, uh, that began to change. So from the mid-60s forward, uh, there began to be this loosening of gun control laws in the state, uh, more prominent coming in the George W. Bush era. Uh, But then, as we've seen in the last um, uh, four or five years, uh, we've seen 
uh, campus carry allowed. Uh, we've seen concealed carry allowed. Uh, and now more, most recently what affected this was uh, the uh, allowing based on the decision of a church community or religious community that uh, concealed carry could be uh, a possibility as well as uh, uh, places of worship uh uh, designating their own security teams, which is what happened in this case, uh, where you had people who were uh, had some level of training and some level of commitment uh, to act uh, on behalf of the community to address any kind of threat that might happen. So they were carrying uh, in the church uh uh, ready to defend, and and thus we see in this case what happened, where you had I think one of the security people were were uh, persons was killed, but then the, another one, the, the the one who led the security team responded and took out the shooter. Yeah, there was some dramatic video that was going viral online. It seems to have been an effective policy to have armed guards, at least in this case, and of course that was in response to earlier church shootings where there wasn't as quick of a reaction. When you talk about your experience. Um, with guns in high school and, and people having their guns and going out. It just made me think about my experience with guns in high school. So although I, I grew up with hippies in Northern California, we moved to San Francisco. I went to very urban uh, public schools and guns in high school were, you know, want to be gangsters with guns in their backpack. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a really uplifting rural experience. Oh, we got guns, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, do some target practice. It was a criminal element to that. And that, really, I think, helps shape people's views on this issue, that kind of urban rural experience when it comes to guns. And Texas, with a really big rural segment, and of course, we're in a more rural part of the state, but with its urban population growing, I imagine that's going to continue to have these different perspectives on the issue. Well, and I, I think that's what we see in this ongoing debate. Uh, for me, gun control is an issue that that is not going to find resolution with any consensus anytime soon. I mean, it, we've we've seen such tragedy. We've seen these mass shootings where uh, attempts have been ramped up to try to impact gun control, and it it just hasn't happened. Uh, and and this is an issue that uh, while you you have most of the attention being given to the polarizing elements of the debate here. You have you have a group that that very strongly emphasizes Second Amendment rights uh, and that sees any kind of control uh, or extending of control as a slippery slope to taking those rights away. And, and so their ability to kind of engage in any kind of constructive dialogue on what levels of regulation should we have where where should we target where where are the in studying all this data that we have that researchers have been gathering from all these mass shootings what what are the critical elements that could be addressed that may prevent some of these you've got the other side uh, that 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 also is very polarizing that says well the only way that we can effectively deal with this is to drastically reduce the number of firearms whatever that may mean whatever kind that may be uh, but and and so the, these groups are controlling the debate because they can't meet in the middle that group is not willing to accept the fact that gun culture or a culture of gun ownership is very strong throughout this country. And, and, and yes, it may be much in, in rural areas, uh, but it's also these things that are happening in urban areas that are giving fuel to the, the other side of the debate to say, well, we need more people that are armed and, and able to protect and defend. Uh, and so that, that gets very challenging. And then you bring in this in a, in a house of worship where you have people say, well, the, the tragedy of this in a place of, of prayer and a place of peace 
I think another challenge is uh, uh, people accepting the reality of this is the world that we live in. And yes, we do need policy change that may have an impact. We're not really getting that accomplished. What are our our alternatives? I mean, is it is it for somebody to just sit there and say, okay, people walk in and and shoot however many people they want to, uh, or for people to take uh, it into their own hands in a in a uh, uh, proper way and and to defend themselves? So. there's two two parts of this. One very challenging policy issue, which again is being controlled by these very polarizing elements without any movement in the middle here to identify critical elements. It's 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 really what it, and you get into the political realm. It's what's politically best for me and my constituents in terms of whom I represent, because we're not going to make any ground on any significant policy changes that might have an impact on this. So I think that's where we find ourselves with this. I see it as a very, very complex, very challenging, uh, where the, the the polarizing elements are not un- trying to have an understanding of where the other side is coming from, uh, much like what we see in the abortion debate. I mean, where you're talking, you're, you're putting values, which they all may be good values, safety, protecting human life, uh, uh, controlling something that can uh, be used for deadly force, but these values are in a different order of arrangement. And and so thus there, there's a difficulty in finding consensus. Yeah. Coming here to uh, teach federal government in Texas, I quickly learned that, you know, I try to have these paper topics where they do a debate and I quickly learned second amendment's not a good one because every student wanted to sign up for it. And then they all were pro second amendment. It was very pro second amendment state. Uh, you can experience that. And I would say um, it's very safe. I feel very safe around here in Erath County. I know there's a lot of free bodyguards, as I call them. <laughs> I've lived in places where you have to pay bodyguards. And here there's a bunch of free ones around. Um, but we do see nationally this, this really contention take place. And we start to see calls for a lot of uh, gun control in the Democratic Party. And we know that the Democratic Party is, is growing here in Texas. Uh, it's just we're not saying it's flipped to Democrats yet, but it's becoming more competitive. But this gun control issue for Democrats in Texas, the state party, um, are they going to approach this different than the national party just based on this being a very pro Second Amendment state? Will they be able to deviate from the national party on this issue or will they likely be driven by the national party? Well, I think on this issue, like we, we see with some other issues, especially even economic issues to a certain degree, uh, that Democrats in Texas, the the majority of them have uh, moved more to the middle in the past or have been in the middle more moderate uh, on some of these issues. I think we see that on this one here. It doesn't it doesn't resonate uh, in in many districts that someone would come out and and support strong gun control in a state like Texas. And, and one recent uh, a survey shows this where uh, the red flag law support, when we look at it across the country. So red, red flag laws are uh, where uh, government entities have the authority, whether through the judiciary and law enforcement combined, uh, to seize the firearms of an individual if there are concerns about mental illness uh, uh, or violence or anything along, along that line. They can hold them for a period of time while this is being reviewed and investigated uh, and then go forward from there. So it's not a permanent. It could be permanent. Uh, So a number of states are starting to pass these kinds of laws. 
nationally, we see about 72% support uh, for these, that this is one way because of the link to mental illness and uh, and some of these sh- uh, mass shootings uh, that, that could be a preventative. In Texas, support for uh, the uh, these laws is at 48%, so well below the national uh, average. And again, I think that just shows you the, the strength of uh, of this identity with a culture that emphasizes gun ownership uh, for a variety of reasons, as we've discussed already. So what you see when you look at the data uh, among Democrats uh, as compared to Republicans uh, is that you see that those those numbers are even lower. So very um uh, left-leaning Democrats, yes, among those, it's about 80%, so it's even higher. But that's a very small minority among Democrats in the state, whereas the more moderate to uh, 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 right-leaning toward independent Democrats, it's around 65%. So that's still below the national average uh, in terms of support for these uh um, these red flag laws. So I, I think it's it's one of those issues, as we saw with Beto, Beto O'Rourke, it's a difficult issue to campaign on in Texas. I mean, there's a lot of backlash in the state, although that wasn't necessarily among Democrats, but I don't n- know that that, uh, that helped him to a certain degree. And I don't think you're going to see Democrats uh, both at the national and the state level run successfully on this issue. There's plenty of other issues that they'll put in front of this before they have to deal with something like this, no matter what their position might be. And it's certainly uh, still a Republican controlled state, uh, Republicans in all statewide offices and uh, Republicans control the state legislature. This seems like an issue where if there was a will in the leadership uh, to come up with some sort of agreement on a red flag law or something like that, you may be able to get something done, but it would have to be an initiative of leadership. And that's currently the Republican Party in Texas. Is there any sign that leadership in the Republican Party in the state is willing to come up with some sort of um, regulation here that might be a a consensus regulation, or is it all in on a a, a strict interpretation of the Second Amendment? Well, I think think to this point, the the record shows, and and then when we have an event like this that happened in White Settlement, and you have government officials come out so quickly, Governor Abbott, Dan Patrick, so forth, that tout their legislative success and just say, well, the lives were protected because of what we did. Uh, I think that that moves leadership further away from looking at any type of gun control it, it it almost for them especially those that are that are strong republican uh that it that it's a betrayal uh to their constituents who are looking at this this other uh uh, kind of timeline of okay we've we continue to loosen laws we now there's this this move across the state for cities and counties to identify themselves as second amendment sanctuaries. You know, this idea that, that we're going to protect this at, at, at all costs, even, even to hearing some people. And I think these are the more extremist voices that would say, well, we'll even violate the rule of law to protect the law. I mean, that to me gets a little far out there and trying to understand the complexity of, the, of these issues. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't see anything that would, change after Sutherland Springs, after White Settlement, after all these other uh, shootings that, that, that you've mentioned, and we have seen the, the opposite happen. Instead of gun control moving to address that, it's been how do we loosen restrictions in order to provide the greatest opportunities for protection, self-defense, and thus, as they see it, the saving of lives. 
So someone like me, you know, I'm a good citizen. I'm not out doing any crimes. I also have pretty good hand-eye coordination, pretty good vision. Uh, should I go get a gun and, and join those of the free bodyguard armed well, citizenry? So th- this is bringing my side of it. And this might be where our listeners go, okay, wait a minute. We're, the table's flipped here. Uh, so having grown up in Texas... Right. I would actually say that I'm one, while I, I do understand the value of, of gun ownership uh, within the state we live in and its history and so on, that I'm uh, I'm lean much more toward how we can find strategic ways to control that that ownership. Uh, so I, I don't I don't align myself in any way with this kind of strict view of the Second Amendment that any level of control, uh, I think if you look at other issues where we've had, we have government step in to control for safety and so on, I think we've got plenty of other areas that could guide us, uh, you know, automobile safety, uh, tobacco use safety and so on, and looking at how do we address public safety in a very, in, a, in an appropriate way without People and, and again, it's getting past these people who think that any move toward control is you're on a slippery slope to doing away with the Second Amendment. Okay, we're we both know in teaching government how far we are from that away from anything like that. Uh, and so, uh, so I I advocate for, but 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 I, I do that in a way of saying we've got to get people actually sitting down and talking sense about this and talking and looking at the data and saying what are again I said strategic ways that we could prevent try to prevent some of these mass shootings i i think that still com- includes people who can conceal and carry i i don't think we're going to be moving back on that at, at all and i think if applied appropriately and with people with the right training and, and background and so on uh but but that doesn't mean that you exclude looking at any discussion or, or, or having any discussion about gun control yeah and i think originally the second amendment is targeting the federal government the, the new powers that the federal government has and trying to restrict the federal government of course you have incorporation through the 14th amendment on many of the bill of rights uh what, what do you think is the best level of government to deal with these very complex difficult questions is it the federal government or the state governments uh, i i think texas provides us with an example to say that this is still uh something that needs to be addressed at this primarily at the state level i think that political culture and history has a lot to weigh in on this. And that varies throughout the country. I mean, you can go to, to, to other areas and you're not going to have the same type of debate uh, on this issue that you that, that we're having in Texas. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean to exclude the federal government. I think the challenge we see here is the willingness of collaboration uh, between the federal and state government to address this issue, given the you know technology and the resources that we have this day. There shouldn't be any reason why uh, we shouldn't be able to find a level of collaboration where federal is supporting state uh, in um, uh addressing these issues in a very, like I said, strategic way. But but again, all of this gets overshadowed by that debate of those people on the extremes who won't even sit down at the table because they, they've already prejudged that either one, that person wants to take away all my guns or that person on the other end is just for everybody to have whatever they want and use it whenever they want to. Uh, it's it's there, There's so many misconceptions uh, and stereotypes in all of this that it really prevents uh, uh, quality analysis of, of, of what policy could do to have a, have an impact and, and hopefully save lives. Well, it's certainly a complex issue and it's going to continue to be on the radar going forward. 
I also would need my wife's permission before I got a gun and brought it in the house. We have three little kids. So with that, we'll go to a break and we'll be back with more Cogley and Morrow on politics. Politics can be confusing, but Cogley and Morrow have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogley and Morrow on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogley and Morrow is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. Well, we had another a person drop out of the Democratic presidential race uh, this past week. Julian Castro, uh, who uh, had been early on uh, uh, thought to be a possibility given his experience as a mayor of San Antonio, as a, uh, a cabinet member in the Obama administration, uh, having the credentials, uh, ha- being uh, Latino, connecting with that uh, constituency throughout the country. Uh, but due to uh, uh Limited fundraising, which had kept him out of a couple of the debates now, uh, and just not having the polling numbers that are necessary to keep moving forward toward the initial primaries, uh, it just wasn't there. It wasn't there for him, and and now he joins uh, Beto O'Rourke, who was the other Texan who was in that uh, primary race. Uh, so now, as it's been covered in the news, we uh, it's a little unusual because if you look back at previous uh, uh, primaries in either party, there's, there's always been a Texan, uh, at least many times uh, within that race. And now we're going to head into a primary cycle uh, where that's not the case. Uh, so Nathaniel, kind of looking at this and some of the, the issues, what this tells us about where we are with the primary and what are some of the challenges that Castro was facing and that we may see for some of the others going forward. Uh, what 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 do you see in this? Well, first of all, I applaud your pronunciation as Julian, because I was saying Julian yeah. coming in here, but you're right. That's a, that's a good Spanish pronunciation there. Yeah, I we originally had over 20 candidates and with, you know, only 100% available in a poll, it's tough for all of them to to stick around. And I always envision this field getting down to about a dozen before we actually do Iowa. Uh, the two Texans, uh, of course, Texas produces big time politicians, but I think these were minor resumes. No knock on them. I've never been a mayor or a re- representative in Congress. It seems like a pretty good accomplishment for for someone, but it's just not the strongest resume to run for president. I didn't like Julian Castro's messaging in this campaign. I thought he was positioning himself very far left. Uh, in that first debate, he, he tried to pick a fight and say that uh, border crossing should be a civil infraction, not a criminal, basically making the argument that the government should not be able to detain people who cross the border illegally. And he was really pushing people on that. Um, it was, he was fiery. He was angry. He was this kind of woke democratism. And uh, I just didn't think he was going to outleft the Bernies and the Warrens and stuff like that. And I didn't know what his strategy, he didn't come in here as the the governing moderate who can be a unifier. And just maybe that wasn't in him. Maybe he really has that passion and there just wasn't a place for him in this campaign. So I'm not surprised. You say he lacked in funding. That's because he also lacked in support. He was only had about one or 2% consistently in the polls. Mm. I agree in, in that he was, he was, his messaging was directed to a, a group that was already firmly behind a Sanders and a Warren uh, in, in in that part of the Democratic Party. And so I think it, he found it very difficult to find his place in that. He was just echoing uh, some of the things that they were saying and 
and like you said, doing it in a way that uh, was not maybe as as upbeat as uh, uh, progressives within the Dem- Democratic Party wanted wanted to hear. Um, I had thought that same thing about if he would have been more of the moderate. And maybe this, as we're saying, this wasn't who he was, that that he would have had more of a chance because there there was certainly the need for more moderate voices in this group uh, that that could be in uh, in in front running and and possibly contend with a Joe Biden uh, who seems to be carrying that message uh, uh, and uh, may have more of an attraction to uh, weak Democrats or those leaning independent. Uh, but. He he just he that just wasn't him. That wasn't his message, and he was not able to attract that support. And so to see him uh, getting out now uh, is is probably was predicted. I think, and in, in some of the things that I read, that that he was just not getting the traction that he needed. Uh, and the other side of this too is that I I don't think that his messaging, especially we see this in Texas, but I I, I would see this on a national level that it was not engaging uh, the Latino. Uh, vote now. I say that knowing that when we look at the Latino vote, uh, the 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 block across the country, you can't really speak of it uh, as as monolithic. I mean, th- sure. there's so much diversity there, sure. generational diversity, ideological diversity, uh, and but but even at that, it just does not seem that he was tapping into that to a significant degree to maybe get the support that he could make up from those. Uh, uh, among uh, Latino Americans that uh, may be not supportive of, say, a Sanders or a Warren. Yeah, just uh, he was uh, the woke activist. And really, as a member of Obama's cabinet and a mayor, he could have been the responsible governing Democrat. And and he didn't sell that. He he sold the woke activism. Uh, Beto O'Rourke dropped out earlier. You know, I was more impressed with his campaign, the messaging, the debate performance. I wasn't very critical. He peaked around 5%, which is much better than uh, Castro's 1%. Um, But he wasn't in Texas anymore. I mean, he got this tremendous support back in 2016 when he was running for Senate against Ted Cruz because he offered the Democratic Party something. He offered him a chance to pick up a Senate seat. That was something. And he had so much support from Democrats nationwide, $114 million war chest. And he put up a good fight. He made it very close statewide in Texas. That's not easy to do. And he just thought that, you know, going to the next level, running for president, that support's going to be there. But he doesn't offer the Democratic Party much at the national level. They're going to have a nominee, whether it's him or someone else. You know, he was their ticket to pick up a Senate seat, but they don't need him to be the nominee. And as a former representative, it's just not a very strong resume to be president based on others in the field. And what's interesting for me with Beto O'Rourke, Every time he stepped up, quote unquote, he stepped down. So he was actually a member of the House of Representatives when he was running for House. He was the winner. He was the representative. When he ran for Senate, he became the party's nominee, but lost that race. And when he ran for president, he had to drop out. He wasn't the party nominee. Every time he stepped up, he stepped down. Eric? Yes. Well, and I don't think he's finished. He's already being very active in terms of statewide campaigns and 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 state uh, uh, House of Representatives and Senate uh, races in Texas going into the next election cycle. And I would say that about both of these. I think I think that 
depending on the outcome of the presidential election, you could definitely find one of them maybe back in uh, a position. Uh, Castro is a cabinet member, maybe even O'Rourke as well. But uh, uh, I, d- I don't think that either one are, are finished. I think it's showing that that lack of, of uh, long-term experience uh, especially in a presidential election, these these are the kind of people that you see come back four years, eight years from now. Uh, they've they've learned some things. They the the timing may be better for them. How they go about strategizing their campaigns. Uh, they're both young uh, when we look at it in terms of the of the fields. So I think we'll we'll see them again. Uh, I think it's it's they're doing the same analysis now. They're they're looking at it. So okay, what what hurt me this time and how can I adjust that if the opportunity presents itself uh, to run for higher office again? Yeah, they're both very well uh, connected. Um, Julian's brother is a member of the House of Representatives still. Uh, Pete Buttigieg's father-in-law is a billionaire. I mean, there's some big financial support and he's got that experience and the connections that come with the work he's done. The other thing about O'Rourke not being successful, I thought was uh, someone else filled his his place. It was a Pete Buttigieg, that young, can-do energy. Wow, this guy's young and impressive the way he talks and debates type thing. And it could have been Beto O'Rourke because he is you know young and impressive and a good debater. But Pete Buttigieg came on the scene and he's maybe a better debater. <laughs> right, right. Yes, no, I, I agree. I, I think the the breadth of the field and the and those challenges and what the and, and strengths that or weaknesses as we see in this case of what they brought to the campaign uh, really shows itself early on. And and you were right to say we're going to be down to a, a certainly a much smaller group going into the initial primaries uh, and whether uh, who who has what chance. I think some of that's based on fundraising. I mean, we we're, we uh, we've been doing some analysis of that and looking uh, in this last quarter. And one of the things I have to say in transitioning to this is that uh, while impeachment may be a negative thing on a, many other fronts, it's not so much on the fundraising front because we see, I think, some benefits coming out of this uh, impeachment process as people are trying to are putting money behind. Uh, who they want to see in the White House uh, this next November uh, or through after the election. Yeah. So we have uh, not everyone's dropped out. We still have a lot of contenders in the Democratic primary. So the ones that are still going, uh, we have some self-reporting here, the fourth quarter uh, fundraising halls. These are not officially due until uh, January 31st, but some of the campaigns that are proud of their halls are going public with this already. And on the Democratic side, we have in the leader here, uh, Bernie Sanders, once again, 34.5 million in the fourth quarter of 2019, leading the pack of fundraising halls. That tells me, Eric, that Bernie ain't going anywhere for a while. And this was always the key to me if if that Bernie Warren thing could be worked out and consolidated. And apparently Bernie's holding steady in the polls and the money is there. I don't see his campaign winding down soon. He didn't have any of really ill effects of his health issues. It just seems that he's continued to move forward. Again, I I see this as we were talking about Castro and O'Rourke and their level of experience. He's building on his 2016 campaign. I mean, he he has a base there that, that has stayed loyal to him and that continues to do that and, 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 and maybe even growing some as we see some of these others drop out. So even a minor dropout like Castro could have a positive impact for someone like Sanders. And so uh, uh, 
that that has not slowed down. And it is interesting to see that going into this primary process when he's not necessarily at the top of the list in Iowa uh, or New Hampshire, but in terms of fundraising and support. He's staying right there with with everyone else. Yeah, and I was just in San Francisco. We're driving a rental car around the city and uh, picking my wife and kids up uh, when they got off the cable car. And I had on KGO. It's a very Democratic talk show station out there. And that was the subject, you know, can Bernie beat Trump? And the callers, one by one, they said, yeah, darn right. Bernie can beat Trump. Yeah, he's the real deal. And I was just thinking to myself, boy, that's a bad matchup for the Democrats. I, I disagree. But he definitely has passionate followers who believe in him and who are there. We're going to see his campaign stick around. Um, the question of if he's a good matchup or not, though, is one right. that's up on the table. There. Well, and, and it could be the, what, what may be interesting as well, coming out of the 2016 Democratic primary process uh, to see the impact that this has on, on that process. So there was definitely an impact with the kind of support that he had going into that convention and, and, and then navigating the outcomes and the challenges that I think that created for Hillary Clinton coming out of that, uh, that convention. Uh, I, I think what we may see going into this one, if this holds, if his, his viability and his support holds, uh, this will be a unique convention because they will not go down that same road again of ignoring that, that level of engagement of those supporters. I think they have, I think they're, they're invigorated by the possibility that they said, this is not going to happen again. We, if we go into that convention with this level of support, we're, we're going to get more out of this. Well, I just think if Bernie's the leader and delegates, the, the, the party is going to rally to make at least the, the the powers that be are going to rally to make this a brokered convention. I don't want, I don't think the powers that be in the democratic party want to see him as the nominee. He's an avowed socialist. He's not even a member of the democratic party. And I just think he's a bad matchup against Trump and that will be fireworks. It'll be very entertaining fireworks. And how can you deny him and then get his supporters on board who you're going to pick different from him? There's all these unanswered questions at this point. Right. It it really puts almost, even though it's a different, a little bit different process, it, it puts the Democrats where the Republicans were of here you had Trump coming forward and there was this somewhat of a side debate going on about, well, how do we, I mean, he, he's on track to get the nomination. How do we derail that in some way? There was some energy. There, right. There yeah. was a little bit. I don't think there will, would be at the level that we would see going into the democratic convention this round. If uh, Bernie maintains this, this level of viability. Yeah. So we see uh, number two for the Democrats, Pete Buttigieg, 24.7 million in the fourth quarter. That's very impressive. And once again, this guy was off of everyone's radar. He's now leading in Iowa, New Hampshire, and he's number two in the cash hole, Eric. This is pretty good signs for him. It, it is. It, he, he just continues to methodically, uh, day by day, de- uh, debate by debate, gain ground. And it, it's interesting to watch this rise, kind of wondering, okay, when is he going to peak? Is he going to, how is this going to look after we come out of Iowa and New Hampshire into South Carolina when they think that, okay, this is where Biden may surge? Uh, that That's the, the conventional thinking about it now. Uh, but the longer that he's able to maintain this, the more viable he is. Uh, as a candidate getting into these first few primaries. Well, I think he's certainly a good debater. I'm impressed how witty and clever he is in answering questions. Even if I don't agree with the answer, he's, that, was, that was a sharp answer. It's just, is that how we select a president who wins the debate? We, we pick the best debater 
for president. Right. And some people do. They sit down to watch the debate and go, oh, he won the debate. I'm going to vote for him. So this will be very interesting to see how that plays out. Coming in a third place, close behind former Vice President Joe Biden, 22.7 million. You know, I, I'm not a believer in his campaign. I've been critical of his odds from day one, but his national polls are holding steady in the upper 20s. You just see them staying at the upper 20s the whole time. And um, he's no longer leading in the first two states, but his national numbers are still good. And he's got some significant money to continue here. Right. So that that continues to feed the 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 uh, perceptions that, okay, he, he really is the front runner in all of this. Once you get past these first few primaries, which are, um, uh, not always good predictors of out outcomes that, that he, he may gain traction. I, I think my concern that, that I raise at that point, uh, is Michael Bloomberg, uh, because then you're moving into that, that territory that's going to, that time frame that's going to lead up to super Tuesday. And he's going to be putting, resources into these states where Biden hopes to win. Uh, and and that that could lead to either a diminishing of his uh, a percentage of the take of the vote, thus helping a Sanders or a Buddha judge. Uh, we don't know. I mean, that's a dynamic. It's an unknown out there because we don't know if this this will even take off or not. It, it could be uh, that Bloomberg is not able to get any traction, and it's just a, a a past headline that now we've moved on with the with the field that we have. Well, I don't know. I've been watching a lot of football, and I see those Bloomberg ads yeah, coming so, on. They're running. Right. They're running here in Texas. Uh, Elizabeth Warren had a good haul at twenty one point two million. She's come down the polls a little bit, and she's not the front runner of money, but it's still an impressive campaign. It just clashes directly with that Sanders campaign, and it, once again, it's leading to this fractured field. Right. If you if if like you had said weeks ago, if they were able to negotiate something. One of them would be definitely in front. I mean, they they appeal to the same, pretty much the same group of people. Although there there are some differences in in certain areas, uh, I, I think there are distinct policy differences uh, that that are not getting as much attention. Uh, but they may once the field starts to narrow uh, more. But but we'll see in the weeks ahead. So the final candidate that declared his haul for the fourth quarter is Andrew Yang, 16.5 million. And he's off some people's radars, but the Yang gang has been going strong. And uh, I just enjoy him in those debates, Eric, because he's talking about policy ideas that aren't necessarily typical Democratic Party platform ideas. He's talking about VAT taxes. He's talking about universal basic income, which is actually a free market idea on the left to say, we'll cut out all the government welfare programs and instead just the cash. I, I don't think that registers on some of the Democrats who think they'll get both. <laughs> right. But I just, he, he certainly adds to the debate. He, he doesn't say the typical party platform things, but is he really a viable resume here for president or is he just building his profile here? Well, I, I don't know at, at this point if he, if he is at this stage in the process, given the front runners that we have. But but what he's showing is that there's a there's such strong pockets of that are very diverse within the Democratic Party and and the challenges of really trying to bring that together. And I think that's what's going to confront any of these candidates that are in the lead coming out of the first three or four primaries and moving into Super Tuesday is how do you appeal uh, to that diversity in order to win the nomination? Uh, so I think that that's that's what he represents to a certain degree. 
I think that if we have a Democrat that wins the White House, uh, Yang may be someone that in terms of on the on the policy front, especially looking at domestic uh, uh, fiscal policy and uh, that that he may have have a. Uh, a key role that that would be beneficial to an administration, uh, given given his background and his success. Uh, but I, I just don't I don't see him surging. I don't I don't I don't see the the positions that he's taking uh, resonating with some of the Warren and Sanders group enough that it gives him any. Uh, uh, a push moving into the primaries. He's fun because he's just, yeah. uh, if I could totally reinvent America, here's what yes, I do type right, candidate. Right, right. Not really running on an actual resume of governing, given America as it actually is. Yes. And uh, the limitations and the structures that are already in place. But I, I love the innovative thinking, whether I agree with it or not, it, it's refreshing. And I'll just mention, Eric, who's missing from having announced uh, one, Kamala Harris, she always had good money. She's not around anymore. Right. She really mismanaged her funds. She couldn't even make it to the first couple states. And then Cory Booker's still in, but he has not announced his money. Maybe it's not that good. I just don't know how long his campaign goes. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't see him in uh, much longer either in the way the polling is going uh, because he 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 would have to spend a significant amount. Uh, and have that have the resources in place just to be able to get to those primaries. And it just seems like that uh, he's been getting uh, less and less attention. I've heard a few people in his campaign interviewed. And while they're they're still being optimistic and the messaging and so on, uh, it, it is more of a transition message. It's moving now to, uh, OK, well, I'm, I'm not good, still going to be in this thing, but uh, uh, I can make a contribution going forward. Yeah, and it looks like Democrats in total will have raised about 115 million in the fourth quarter. Very impressive. But the the candidate with the most is Donald Trump, 46 million, right. and apparently he has over 102 million cash on hand. And while the Democrats spend their millions battling out against each other following the primary schedule around, uh, Donald Trump is building up a war chest for the general election. Right. And th this is where in this fourth quarter, I think you have to go back as, a, as we started this segment to impeachment. I think impeachment is is driving some of this. It's either that group that says we've got to get Trump out of the White House. He's going to come out of this unscathed uh, in terms of uh, uh, the, the impeachment process. Uh, there are those supporters for Donald Trump saying, look at what the Democrats are doing to him. We've got to ensure that he gets reelected. And so it's it it, it seems to be benefiting uh, campaigns uh, to to be able to generate the kinds of the record setting uh, revenues that, that are resources that we see coming into these campaigns that are really setting this up to, again, as we've seen with previous elections, uh, probably be uh, a new uh uh, mark in spending uh, on campaigns for the White House. Well, and then on top of that, we have uh, two more billionaires on the Democratic side. Tom Steyer, who I, hasn't been gaining much traction, but Michael Bloomberg, who really is in the news and has already picked up 5%, 6% support. I mean, he's inching upwards. Right, right. And that, and that may continue. That's the, the unknown that we just have to continue to watch and see uh, because he does have millions and millions of dollars that he's putting into advertising uh, and and getting his name and his message out there. And uh, so the impact of that, we, we just at this point, we don't know. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see uh, with his absence. And, and if that number continues to grow, how much of, of the debate will turn to focusing on someone who's not on the stage? 
uh, if if it's perceived that okay, he's he's actually a viable candidate. Right, he's not on the stage, but he's spending that money. Right. His messaging yeah. is out there, and all that money is going to uh, lead us to a very exciting primary season coming up as we actually get into states. Uh, the final thing, Eric, this week there's uh, been a lot of news internationally on the scene, and this has jumped around. There was a killing of a U.S. contractor at an American base that led to. Uh, U.S. airstrikes that killed 25 fighters from Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. That led to two days of protests at the U.S. embassy compound in Baghdad, where the staff needed to go to a secure room. And then finally, we see the drone strike at a Baghdad airport that killed uh, General Qasem Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite Quds forces, and along him, Abu Mahdi al-Mahuhandis, deputy commander of the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq, known as the Popular Mobilization Forces. So we see this kind of uh, an action and then a reaction and an action and a reaction. Of course, it didn't start with these four events. It's been going on a long time, ever since uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq. You could probably channel it back a decades earlier. But we see a lot of fireworks going off in the Middle East. Eric, any thoughts on these? Well, the the attacks in, in Iraq and in Baghdad are getting attention. These have been ongoing for months now. We've seen about three months of different levels of attacks. And so now it's come to the point where uh, there was certainly a need for response. Uh, I've, I've kind of looking at the timing of this, uh, the it seems that at least in some of the things I've looked at, that this assassination has been pl- in the works for a long time. This was someone, uh, Soleimani was someone that had been coordinating and working with different groups throughout a- Iraq and the, in the Middle East in terms of uh, terroristic responses to the U.S. presence there uh, and attempts at destabilization on behalf of Iran and, and, and uh, other outside organizations. And so um, I, there, there have been... Uh, this has been in the works for a period of time. I think it comes, though, as a response uh, to what's happening. And so here was the opportunity for it to uh, to, to to assassinate him. Um, and uh, the, the attacks on the embassy in, in Baghdad and these other uh, strikes and things that have been going on, it. Political motivations, yes. This is not going to be another Benghazi, is is what Trump and his uh, leadership has been saying. Uh, so they're getting political mileage out of this. Uh, the justification for it, uh, the things that I that I've seen and read, I think that was certainly there. I mean, there's the, this person, Suleimani, has been targeted for a long period of time, knowing that his influence and the way that he's been working on behalf of Iran uh, needed to be addressed. And so all of this is kind of coming together. Uh, I think what concerns me with this a little bit, and just, you know, to quickly, because uh, with, with our time that we have, uh, is that uh, kind of the chest thumping that's happening now uh, because of this, if we go back and look at how we've handled assassinations in the past, uh, you know, this is not a a high point always in, in American foreign policy in which you, you know, champion American ideals and what we've done and look at who we are and all of that. It's, it's, it's at times been much more subdued uh, rather than uh, 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 trying to kind of be in the face of an opponent like that and saying, Hey, look, look at what we can do to you. Um, It's, it's, it's power with reservation. Uh, That's not happening here. And I think one of the concerns coming out of this, if you're, if you're on, for those that might be have been opposed to this or might agree with the motivations for assassinating Soleimani, but then saying, okay, let's not bring more back on ourselves because this man was very much connected with a wide range of groups that would do, have been 
uh, we can certainly assume they've been planning attacks uh, that at, at some point are going to t- try to 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 uh, uh, have re- there are going to be repercussions. There's going to be consequences for this that could be very uh, deadly. Yeah, I think Soleimani, he's an official uh, general within Iran's elite Quds Force. And but his activities have been more engaging Iranian support for other regimes in the area involving in Syria and and uh, Iraq. And of course, Iraq is a was a colonial structure. There's a lot of Sunnis there that uh, Iran naturally feels affiliation with. And certainly there's no uh, love loss for me, for Soleimani. I'm sure he's done a lot of things that, you know, um, I wouldn't agree with and stuff like that. You just wonder, what's the end goal here? I mean, I, I and I, I'm starting to think this might be the goal is just this back and forth in the Middle East. Trump has certainly shown a willingness to do targeted strikes, but not to occupy with ground forces. Well, we'll continue to follow this issue. We're out of time for today. We thank you for joining us on Cogley and Morrow on Politics, and we look forward to being with you again next week. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.